I'll open up in a word of prayer, then I'll explain kind of what we're doing and what we'll be doing over the next little while and uh, how it'll all work out. And then we'll get into our study tonight and uh, move forward in that. So let's just pray, though. Father, we thank you tonight that you were with us. We thank you, Lord, that we can look into your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're going to speak to our hearts and minister to us by your Holy Spirit tonight. You're going to minister to us by your word tonight. And, Lord Jesus, that we can learn more of you and have you, O oh God, revealed more to us. Uh, so we just praise you and thank you, Lord. I thank you for each one that is here. Lord, I thank you that you're just speaking to us, Lord, and looking to work in us, Father, through your Spirit. So we just bless you tonight, Father, in Jesus' precious name. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. What I have been thinking about over a little while now is wanting to do a series on really the foundations of faith or the tenets of faith, in some sense our statement of faith, uh, as a foundational aspect for our church. Now, I recognize that, you know, we're a smaller number tonight, but what I'm, one of the things that I'm doing is also recording this, and my hope is that over a period of time, uh, first of all, if you're watching this and not coming, I encourage you to come out to the next ones. But I also I want this to be something that can be put into sort of a, a catalog for the church so that anybody coming into the church, any new believers that come into the church and so forth have a resource to learn about what we believe and understand what we believe as a church. We recognize that there are a lot of people coming in, a lot of people coming in from different backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, some who are not from Christian backgrounds. And so, you know, I wanted to lay out basically a foundation of faith uh, as to where we as Cornerstone stand. And for you here tonight, I realize that a lot of these things will probably, you know, in a sense I'm speaking to or preaching to the choir, but I think that they are good for us to review and to realize and recognize. Pentecostal believing, full gospel, if you want to say, or charismatic church in some sense. I know that some of those labels carry different stigmas with it, but I mean, those are, we believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the full aspect of being baptized by the Spirit of God with the evidence of speaking in tongues and so forth. So we will be looking at those things as we go through it. And so I'm hoping that over a period of time that we will be able to develop, like I say, this kind of foundational faith study that people can go through and uh, I'm going to be being able to put out notes uh, for it so that those who may not be able to come I know that some people would like to come but they have work or they have kids and the 
the ease of coming out to a Bible study during the week is not as simple as just coming out. So hopefully that not only will we have people here in the building during our time of Bible study, but also that there will be able to be people who watch uh, online uh, at, at their, uh, you know, ability or convenience. So that's kind of where we're going. And like I said on Sunday, one of the things that we want to do is have Bible studies, more Bible study times for the first three, sun, or three Thursdays of the month, and then the last Thursday of the month have a real prayer with emphasizing uh, deliverance and healing and, and, me, and praying for those who really need those areas uh, worked out in their lives. So tonight, we're going to start right from the start. And we're going to start with the doctrine of the Bible. The doctrine of the Bible. Um, kind of outlining what we believe about Scripture, uh, what the Scripture says about itself, and just giving a foundation for that. How many know that everything that we do is founded in the Word of God? Everything that we believe is founded in the Word of God. And so we have to kind of, if we want to start out with our study or the different doctrines of Scripture or our statements of belief, we have to start out with the starting point of where we believe and the starting point of what we base our faith upon, the starting point of what we believe is Scripture. God desires to reveal himself. He takes pleasure in making himself known to his creation. And, and through the years, he's conveyed his will, his purposes, and who he is by speaking to chosen men and giving a revelation of himself. And so the Bible is not man's effort to find God, but the Bible is God revealing himself to man. And so we kind of want to understand the origin. We want to understand how it was formed. We want to understand its authority. We want to understand its inerrancy. And we want to understand the divine inspiration behind it all. Now, I will say in our whole studies together, I am not going to take a, a like I want to say, I don't, I'm not going to take an apologetics approach. I'm not going to try to come in and say, when we study, for example, God, I'm not going to come out and try to give arguments for why God exists. I'm assuming we believe God exists. I'm assuming that we believe, for example, tonight that the Bible is the word of God. So I'm not going to try to argue those things. I just want to speak about what the Bible is, what the Bible is to us, how it was formed, some understandings of what we know about Scripture, and just to give us a foundation of God's Word in our lives. Who knows what Bible means? Just the word, Bible. You never, no, I, I didn't think of it either. Bible is actually a Greek word, biblios, meaning a book. Bible just simply means book. Okay, that, that's really what it comes down to. Just like if you were to go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, it, could, it would be translated the biblios of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. So you could say the Bible of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Bible really is a book. So, you know, sometimes you see in stores the Bible of cooking or whatever, the Bible of, you know, in some places it's the Bible of engineering planes or whatever. Well, it's just saying it's a book, a book of engineering or a book of cooking. But to us, we obviously know that the Bible is our book. It is our word. It is actually a collection of books, right? We, uh, we have a collection of books. Some other words that we use to describe the Bible are holy scriptures, holy writings, the oracles of God, the word of God. We find these things found in scripture. Um, we find these, these, these descriptions in scripture. We also know that there's the divisions of scripture, which are, what's the two main divisions? I know you guys, this is hard. New and Old Testament, right? Here, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Let's see. How many books in the Old? 39. And the New? 27. You guys are good. You all passed. <laughs> and we all, we, so we have the Old and New Testament. Testament meaning covenant. So really you could say the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. And as we've talked about, the Old Testament has 39 books. Sometimes the Old Testament is referred to as the Law and the Prophets. Uh, we do know that the Old Testament is divided up into the Torah, which is the first five books. You have prophets such as Ezekiel and Isaiah. You also have books of poetry such as Psalms and Proverbs. Then you, all, you have other books which are kind of like called the five roles, which are like the song, Songs of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. And then you have historical books like Daniel or Chronicles. Uh, in the New Testament, we have 27 books. Uh, we have the biographical books of, of Jesus' life, really, which is another word we use, the Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the Gospels. We have also the historical book of Acts. And then we have the Epistles which are basically all the other writings such as Romans or Galatians or 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. All of those different books are the epistles. And then, of course, the one prophetic book, which is Revelation, right? The Revelation, the last book of, 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 of uh, the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation. It's important to note, it's important to note when we consider these books, these books were all defined, but it's important to note that the chapters and verses or the chapter and verse designations were never part of the original text. Um, you know, the, the chapter and verses in the books are not inspired. Amen. The chapter and verse designations in the books are not inspired by God. They're just put in there by man uh, to try to help organize and to be able to find specific places in scriptures quickly. Uh, you will find sometimes they have been put in places where it doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't quite fit. All right. It's like, well, how come it happened there? And whatever, it's, it's, it's there. It's how it works. Um, but it, those designations, the book designations are obviously 
uh, we would believe are inspired because it's the different writers, but the chapter and verses, the actual, you know, chapter 3, verse 1, for example, of whatever book you might be talking about is not something inspired. It's just put in there by man for the ease of use of Scripture. When we talk about the Bible, we talk about the canon of Scripture. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. We, we often talk about when the Bible was put together, the, the canon that was put together. Do you know what a canon, what the canon means in Greek or what it was in Greek? No? Okay. It was actually a measuring rod or reel, reed. And it was basically to signify the standard by which something is measured. Okay? So the canon is, is basically a measuring tool in order to see, does this line up or does this measure up to whatever you're measuring it against? And so the Bible was brought into place or the books were brought into place or the canon was brought into place through various measuring tools that, uh, w that were used to test out Scripture. Some people say, well, how do we know the books are those that God has given to us. And, and when they were designed or when they were chosen, they went through different evidences to make sure that they lined up and they were basically came to a point of meeting the measuring stick required to make it into our word of God. One, one measuring stick was, did an apostle write the book? For example, was the book written by an apostle or someone close associated to an apostle? Luke, for example, wasn't an apostle. Okay? But Luke was associated very much so with the apostles. He was a, he was a, a disciple, I would say. Um, but he wasn't classified specifically as an apostle. But we have, you know, the apostle Peter, the apostle Paul, and so forth. So in the New Testament, you can look at and say, Okay, these individuals who wrote these books were definite apostles of Jesus Christ or they had close relationship to the apostles and therefore by way of their position in the church at that time gives them an authority to write uh, to the church. Another thing was the spiritual content. Was the book being read in the churches and did they provide spiritual edification? In other words, did they take, do we know that these books were taken by the early churches, the original churches, and were they read to those original churches? And did those churches use them as spiritual edification and, and so forth? And so if the book was used in the early church, then it was obviously something that the early church felt was important. Again, another one, were they were the contents doctrinally sound? Was all what they wrote lined up with the other scriptures? Um, were they widely recognized by the early church fathers? Even some of the very early church leaders and so forth. Did it give true evidence to divine inspiration? Um, or was it just some historical content that anybody could have written? But was there true divine inspiration? And also, were passages quoted from other known books of Scripture? One of the ways that the Old Testament, for example, was chosen was 
Is it referenced or is it quoted in the New Testament somewhere? Is that book quoted in the New Testament somewhere? Or did Jesus himself quote from the Old Testament? Or did Jesus himself quote from, say, the book of Isaiah or the book of Psalms or the book of Proverbs? Because if Jesus himself quoted from those books, then that would tell us that that book was something that Jesus himself considered divinely inspired and, and something that we should truly use as well. Do those things make sense? Yeah. So that's kind of how we got the canon of Scripture. That's how it was measured against. That's, that's the measuring tool that they used to bring all the books together and, and bring us, for what we have today, the 66 books of the Bible. Um, I know that there are other things people sometimes ask about the Apocrypha. They didn't go, th- first of all, there's errors in the Apocrypha. There's doctrinal errors. They're not divinely inspired and so forth, even though some aspects of the Roman Catholic Church use it and so forth. Um, uh, let's go on to the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, this means that in its original writing, the inerrancy of Scripture means that in its original writing, the Bible contains no mistakes, that it is infallible in, and this is important, in its original languages. In its original languages. You will find mistakes in Scripture in English. You will find mistakes in French. You will find mistakes in German, partly because... Sometimes you don't have exactly the right word to give a description or to translate the exact meaning. Sometimes it was a translation error and so forth. But in the original language, in the written languages of Scripture, the original written languages, it is infallible. Why is it important that it's infallible? Well, if you cannot have a positive faith in the infallibility of this book, how can you speak to the final, or how can you have it speak to you in the final authority as of matters to eternity? Or how can we have confidence in what it says about God? Or how can we have confidence in what it says about Jesus or salvation or any of those sorts of things? So it's important to understand that the Bible is infallible, that there are no mistakes in it. Now I'm going to get to something about that in a minute. Infallibility doesn't mean that mistakes are not recorded, and I'll get to that in a second. We'll talk about that in a moment. Where does this idea come from? First of all, from the book itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, probably a scripture that many of us could memorize or have memorized, All scripture is what? Given by inspiration or is inspired by God and is unprofitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Another verse is 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 where it says, All scripture again is inspired. Well, I copied the same verse. (laughs) Let me see. I, I think I have it somewhere else. Let me just... Uh, 
Second, yes, for no prophecy at any time was produced by the will of man. No prophecy was produced by the will of man, but holy men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay? So we have those two passages of scriptures telling us where the scriptures, where the word that we where the words that we're reading come from. Inspired by God. We also have the Old Testament writers. Over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, it claims to be transmitting, or the writers claim to be transmitting the words of God. Okay? Just some quick examples. I, I'm not going to read all 3,800. All right, I said 3,808, they say. I didn't, I didn't count them all to, to make sure, but just two examples. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. One from, from Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor shall you take anything from it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So in both of those situations, we see that they are implying or they are saying that these words that they're bringing, the law of the Lord or the word that I'm bringing you, is actually I'm transmitting to you or I'm declaring to you God's word to you. And that is over 3,800 times in the Old Testament you can, you can find those things. You also see it in the New Testament, in the writers of the New Testament. Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, says this, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. And we know that, you know, God is holy, God is just, and God is good. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 22, it says, but, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man, viewing his natural face in a mirror. He views himself and goes his way and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, the man will be blessed in his deeds. These verses, these, these verses that we are looking at, again, just simply give evidence or give revelation to us that these are God's words to us and that we are to live by them. Jesus himself gives example of this as well when he says in Matthew chapter 5 and 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, what? Not one jot, not one dot or one mark or one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Okay? Another verse where he, 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 he quotes John 10 and 35, it says there, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. So we, we have Jesus' own words referencing these words that we're, we're reading and, and, and bringing into our own heart. Also, if you look into Jesus' life, he refers to many Old Testament persons and events and gives authenticity and approval and authority to those things by way of using them as examples or speaking to them 
or, or using them as reference or declaring them. And so God, being perfect and whole, wrote it, and therefore it is without error. It is, it is, there is no error in Scripture. We also know that it is without error when we're talking about morally and spiritually. And this is especially important today, right? Because how many have heard today the idea that this is an old-fashioned book? It hasn't kept up with the times of, or the seasons that we're living in, that it's somehow outdated. This was good for 2,000 years ago, uh, but it doesn't apply today. Uh, but we know that the Bible is without error morally and spiritually. Uh, it does not change. It doesn't need to change when it comes to the moral or spiritual climate of our day. The Bible is the measuring stick for moral and spiritual tests. It has influenced civilizations, it's transformed lives, and it's impacted the world with its unchanging truths. And so we know from Scripture that the Bible is God's Word, it is His perfect Word, it does not change, there is no error in it, there is no mistake in what God says in his word. Now, here's an interesting thing about God's word, though, which I put it kind of into a little note. It's interesting that the Bible is not a book that shies away from the errors or mistakes or the sins of people or its authors. And that's what I was getting at. Right? If I was writing a book... And I wanted people to be impressed and to follow the book and to think, if you wanted to say, I was creating a religion. I would make sure that it was spotless, or I would try to make sure it was spotless. It's interesting that you look into Scripture and God includes the failings of people. He includes the failings of Israel. It's all of these different things. I mean, you think about David. God says on one hand, David is a man after his own heart. And on the other hand, we see David having such moral failure. I mean, <laughs> none of us can imagine going down that road of moral failure that David did. And yet God includes him in the scriptures. And so they're documented both throughout the Old and New Testament. And I actually believe that this really speaks to the authenticity and the authority of Scripture. Uh, because God doesn't sugarcoat anything. God lays it out as it is and, and gives us a, a revelation of mankind, giving us a revelation of himself to mankind. And, and, and we can see it all open to bear for us all to read. And, and I think that that, speaks to the authenticity of, of what Scripture is and, and to the genuineness of what Scripture is to us. So it's, a, it's an important thing that, yes, the Bible has no errors, but the Bible records the mistakes and errors and the sins. That's a good way of putting it. The Bible is infallible in the presentation of all its facts. Yes. Good, bad, ugly, and all the in-between. 
let's look at now let's look at the inspiration of the scriptures we've we've read well i read the two verses but let's just read them again and just kind of talk about it a little bit more second timothy 3 16 and 17 says this all scripture is inspired by god or in in, in i think in the king james it says god breathed and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, it's an interesting thing because if you look at what that means, or inspired by God, or God breathed, yes, we understand that God moved upon the authors to write, but it is it is actually implying more than just that. It is implying that the scriptures are a divine product. That the breath of God is in the scriptures itself. That it is not simply that God just came upon Peter and Peter wrote it down, but that God, through the whole process, that, that whatever was created in the end was actually a divine, divinely produced product. Uh, let, let me go on to the next one and, and maybe hopefully kind of explain it again a little bit more. Second Peter one twenty one, for no prophecy at any time was produced by the will of man, but holy men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It, like I say, it goes beyond saying that the Holy Spirit simply guided or directed or were led by the writers, but in a sense they were taken up by the Holy Spirit or enabled by the Holy Spirit and brought by his power to complete his goal and purpose. I don't know if that makes sense or, you know, if that is okay. So the things spoken were not of their own will, although we can see characteristics of themselves in it as far as writing styles and so forth, but it was the Holy Spirit producing what was being written. Uh, so the writings of Scripture are supernatural or was a supernatural event enabled by the Holy Spirit to take place at the time of writing. Some people say, how did it happen? I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm not one who thinks that they somehow got into some sort of trance and the Holy Spirit took their hand and wrote it. I, I don't believe that in any, I don't get that sort of any, that's what some people believe. I, I just look at it and take it by faith and say, somehow the Holy Spirit moved upon these individuals and at the time of their writing, at the time of their recording it all, it was the Holy Spirit producing through him the very thing that he wanted produced and recorded and I just accept that by faith. And I think that's maybe the easiest way to look at it. Because when you try to start figuring it all out, who knows how God worked at the time of that it all happened. Yes. And then you don't need faith. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's just like kind of Jonah and the, and the whale. If you can figure out how the whale swallowed Jonah... And how all of that transpired and how he, if he survived or was he resurrected, well then, you don't need faith. I just say Jonah swa uh, the whale swallowed Jonah 
and we'll move forward from there, right? Let's look at some of the symbols of Scripture, some of the symbols of the Scriptures that we find in the Word of God. One of the symbols, which I, I think we've kind of looked at, is a mirror found in James chapter 1. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man viewing his natural face in a mirror. He views himself and goes his way and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in his deeds. So we get one symbol of scripture. One of the symbols of the word of God is that it's a mirror and that it gives revelation of what is or what we are like or when we look into the mirror, we see, we get a view of ourself and it gives us a perspective of, of what God's word says about who we are, how we are, and uh, even the change that needs to come. Another aspect or another symbol of scripture is the seed. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, it says there, For you have been born again, not from perishable seed, but imperishable, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So we, we also know that Luke chapter 8, we have the parable of the sower. And so we understand from scripture that the word of God is living and it can be planted in our lives and come forth like a seed. So that's, a, that's another way the word of God can be, or a symbol of the word of God that we can see in scripture. Uh, also a laver or water. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So the word of God can be symbolized by water or the labor that brings about a cleansing. Uh, something that we probably are very familiar with. Psalm chapter 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we can see that the symbol of a lamp or a light can be referenced to the word of God. Something interesting that maybe we haven't thought of before. There's actually two here uh, in this passage of Scripture. Jeremiah 23, 20, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks or the rock into pieces? And so we get the idea or we get the symbol of the word of God being like fire. And, uh, or like a hammer that can break something hard. We also see Hebrews chapter 4 and 12. Is not my word, oh no, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, now I lost my thought because I would be able to reference Hebrews chapter 4 and 12. The word of God is like a two-edged sword, piercing even the divide uh, of, of soul and spirit, right? So we, we get that. Again, the, the word of God like a sword. We also see that the word of God, the symbol of the word of God is like food. Milk, for example, 1 Peter 2.22. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by it. Jesus referenced the word as bread. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is also referenced uh, as another food, as honey. Psalm chapter 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to the taste of my mouth, sweeter than honey 
to my mouth. So it's interesting that as you go through the scriptures, God gives us different symbols that we can see in scripture that he uses to give us an understanding or give us a picture of what his word is like to our lives. We can also see in scripture that the Holy Spirit and the scriptures play an important role. You know, oftentimes the Pentecostal movement gets accused of being basically based on experience. You ever heard that? Right? And and there is some truth to it uh, in one sense, but the Pentecostal movement is also very Bible-centered because the Holy Spirit and the Bible are always in perfect agreement. That is something that sometimes I think we've lost today or could be a criticism of the Pentecostal movement is that we need to remember that the Holy Spirit and the Bible are always in perfect agreement. One reason is the word is a result of the inspired activities or the activity of the Holy Spirit. We've just said that the Holy Spirit is the one who produced it. So if the Holy Spirit is the one who produced it, he's going to be the one who backs it up in the activities that he he completes. Now I'm not going to read all of these scriptures. I have a have a few, but let me just think just let me tie those two things together. The Holy Spirit and God's word. Second Samuel 23 verse 2 says the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Proverbs 1 verse 23 Turn at my reproof. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. John 6, 63. uh, John 63, 663. Again, I quoted the wrong wrong verse. You know, the words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. Okay, um, that's the verse that we're, we were looking at. Uh, Acts 4 and verse 31, when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. 1 John 5 and 7, there are three who testify in heaven. What? The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, right? So as Pentecostal believers and as a Pentecostal church, we should be people of God's word. We, we, yes, we believe in signs and wonders. We believe in the gifts. We believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things, all of these aspects of God and all of these aspects of the Holy Spirit must be in agreement with the Bible because the Holy Spirit cannot conflict with Scripture. And so we, we see that we see that throughout Scripture. Any thoughts, comments? Yes. Yes. And then you have the other side of the that inspired the word. Yeah, you have the you have the imbalance on both sides, right? You got so people who are so spiritually minded that they set the the word aside, right? And then you got people who are so, if you want to say, 
word wordy minded or biblically minded that they set the spirit aside and and you have to have a balance of both or else you will go into error right that's good let's look at kind of closing in a sense of how the scriptures came to us how the actual bible came to us um most of it was written in ways that we don't understand. Obviously, you know, we have paper and pen and computers and all that today. Um, much of the scripture was written on, on, on products that we, or on products that we would never think of. You know, stone writings, for example. We know, for example, the original Ten Commandments was written on, on, on stone tablets, right? Uh, but other things were such things as, you know, and obviously we know what took place with them, but the other things were like clay or wood or leather, uh, papyrus. Much of the New Testament was written on these rolls of papyrus, which some could be like 30 feet long. Uh, uh, just a roll of, of, of this paper-type substance or parchment. And they had different instruments that were you know, for the ink or scratching into the wood or scratching into the leather or, or, or different or different things to do it. I can't imagine how long it would have taken to write something in that manner. <laughs> and and the and the the discipline and the uh, patience to write something out in that manner. This is just mind-boggling when you think about it today because all we do is just sit down and type it. And, you know, you make a mistake, you just go back, delete, and so forth. Um, and, 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 you know, not in that day. The languages of the original Bible, uh, the original languages are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And when we're talking about Greek, it's different than today's modern Greek. Uh, it's, a, it's a different type of Greek. Most of all the Old Testament books were written in Hebrew. Okay? Aramaic was, le was the least used among the languages. Basically, it's mainly Hebrew and Greek. Uh, but six chapters in Daniel, some chapters in Ezra, and some words in the New Testament, such as the recording, and we actually recorded in it, even in our English Bibles, Mark 7.34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are actually written in Aramaic. So some books in the Old Testament, or some chapters of Daniel and Ezra in the Old Testament are written in Aramaic. And then some brief passages in the New Testament, or brief phrases are written in the New Testament, are, rich in, are written in Aramaic. Abba, for example, is an Aramaic word. Abba is not a Hebrew word. It's not a Greek word. Abba is an Aramaic word for father. Okay? Greek was the universal language of kind of the New Testament time, Jesus' time. And it, if you think about it, it made possible for the spread of the gospel to the world. If, if the Greek New Testament or the, the books of the New Testament were written in Hebrew, how would the some of the New Testament churches read it unless somebody translated it. So you think about how God orchestrated it all in having, I would say, I, I think basically all the New Testament written 
in the day's predominant language of the time. Um, the manuscripts, manuscripts is basically a, a restriction to the copies of the Bible in the original language. So when people talk about the original manuscripts, they're talking about the Bible in the original language. There, was, there is no such thing as an English manuscript. Okay? There's no such thing as an English manuscript. Manuscripts uh, were also not necessarily complete, but usually portions of Scripture. It's interesting that in 1455 A.D., when kind of the first copy of the Bible was printed, there were about 2,000 manuscripts available at the time. Today, there's over 4,500 manuscripts of just the New Testament alone. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Recently, and you've probably all heard about it, or you would have known about it, you know the Dead, Scree Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947, the goat herder. Can you imagine being the goat herder that found the Dead Sea Scrolls? 350 scrolls rolled up into, you know, vases or ceramics found. And those scrolls were written somewhere between the first century before and after Christ. So those scrolls were written basically during the time of Christ. And those scrolls also contain the entire book of Isaiah. This is where, if you want to say there's a little bit of apologetics in this sense, it's significant because people question the authenticity or the, you know, the accuracy or the genuineness of the Bible. It's interesting because scholars are willing to accept 10 to 20 manuscripts of classical writing to consider it genuine. And yet we have thousands of manuscripts referencing scriptures and passages of scripture and books of the Bible. We have thousands of them, and some people still question and even scholars would question, you know, if they're valid or not, or whether they're genuine or not. Out of these different manuscripts that have been found, they've interpreted these manuscripts, and that's where we basically get our English Bible or any other Bible come, comes from. They're translated as or from these different manuscripts or from these different codexes that they're called and are produced producing our Bibles today. There are four methods of trans translation, word for word, which is basically they took the Greek or the Hebrew and translated it, tried to translate it word for word. No translation is actually 100% word for word because some, some words in Hebrew, some words in Greek just do not exist in our language, and so you could, the best that you can do is give the thought of it. Um, then you have the balance, which is kind of between a word-for-word -word approach and a thought-for-thought -thought approach. Um, and then you have the thought-for-thought -thought approach, which is basically taking what does this, what's the writer trying to say here and trying to just portray it in the modern language of the day. And then you have the paraphrase, which is my least favorite. I do not like paraphrases. I do not call paraphrases translation. Um, but we'll, you know, it's like, it's like, sorry? 
the new well, like New King James are probably between more kind of a balance because it gives a word for word and a, and a, and a thought for thought. Uh, a paraphrase, for example, is like uh, the Good News translation, or the uh, the one of the latest ones is the passion. They call it the Passion translation, or the uh, what was the big one there for a while, the Message translation. And people call it a translation. It's not a translation. It's a it's a paraphrase. You know, um, there. Yes, it's his translation. It's his thought of what he thinks the Bible is saying. Okay? At best, it can be used as something maybe you can say, okay, I hadn't thought about that. But it should never be used as a translation. Um, I do believe that tra- uh, par- paraphrases are... are Well, yeah, people can put any thoughts into it, so they're very subjective. So why do new translations appear? Some of the things are words change. Modern language changes constantly, and the Bible must sometimes update for that very reason. Uh, There are passages of Scripture, and sometimes people have challenged me, Pastor Chad, why don't you only use King James? And then I will pull out, I can't think of one right off the top of my head, but I'll pull out a verse where I know that there is a word. For example, there's the word in the King James translated as conversation. Let, it'll say something, let your conversation be godly or something to that effect. What do people say? What do you think people would say? They'll say to me, that means my talk should be godly. What well, conversation it means behavior. Okay? Conversation means it includes what you're talking about, but conversation is actually an overarching word to talk about your whole behavior. And so I, I, I'll pull out phrases like that and say, well, and then I'll say, well, see, there are spots that if you are not looking into the 1611 version or English dictionary of that word to understand what the writer meant, you are not going to get a full understanding uh, of, of, of what the passage of Scripture means. And so you have sometimes that. Like, for example, my wife, English being second language, has a difficult time reading the King James. And understanding it because some of the words to her just don't make, it doesn't, because she's learned modern English, if you want to say, she doesn't grasp it in the same way that I can grasp it, uh, and and so forth. And because, obviously, I've studied it. Uh, Understanding of ancient language changes. You know, there are things that they understand about the languages of the day that were different than 400 years ago when they first did the translations. They understand more of the culture. They understand, or they have more manuscripts now that are available, so they have a better understanding. And then, of course, you know, the purpose and so forth. Um, Some people ask, well, isn't the King James the first English Bible? Actually, no. Uh, The King James was not the first English Bible. Uh, the first English Bible could really be dated back to John Wycliffe in 1382. 
who revised it in 1388, after which he suffered a stroke and died. That was the first English Bible really classified as English Bible. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting tidbit about his life. He was looked at as a heretic. So much so, think about this. So he didn't suffer so like some of the other heretics of the day. He suffered a stroke and died 43 years after he died because he was such a heretic and a problem to the church. 43 years after he died, they dug up his bones and burdened them and threw his ashes into the river to prove a point. 43 years later. <laughs> then you have William Tyndale, who in 1516 wrote an English Bible. After lots of opposition from the Roman Catholic Church, he fled to Germany. Uh, he completed, uh, well, no, for the first English New Testament. He completed some of the Old Testament books, uh, but in 1534, he was betrayed, and after 16 months in prison, he was strangled and burned at the stake. Then you have such things as the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, 1568. Then we have today what is called the King James Bible that was brought out in 1611. It should be noted today, though, that the King James Bible that we use today is not the original King James Bible. There have been several revisions through that time, uh, including, I think there was one about 10 years after the original uh, original King James was, was written. So, uh, And then, obviously, today we have things like the English, the first real modern translation was the English Revised Edition in 1870, and then the American Standard in 1901, and then we've had many since that period of time. And I think, like, for example, the NIV came in 1978 or, or something like that. So we have all of these different translations today. So any thoughts? You were talk we were talking about translations. No? Yes. Yeah, if you look at the period of writing, it's about 2,400 years. I think there's about 60 different authors, or, or no, maybe, maybe a little less. And you look at the, the various, um, I, I mean, somebody outlined it one time. You look at all the different, if you want to say, occupations of all the authors. You know, you have kings down to, you know, in a, in a sense, fishermen, you know, shepherds and, and, and so forth. And, and all the different historical times that they lived in and, and all of that. And yet there's that one congruent message through the whole thing. Nobody, nobody contradicts each other in any fashion or any way. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, all of those different things of Scripture. Um, so... I'll just close with this. You know, as a church, um, the Bible is our foundation. That's why when we read out of, read, I read out of Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. The Bible is our authority. It is our manual to do life, to do church. It's our manual to do everything that we do. Everything we teach must find its origin and basis in God's Word, and the Word of God must be central to everything that is taught. And, you know, as I say, 
at Cornerstone, the Bible will always be front and center to to everything that we do, to everything that we think, to everything that we, how we respond in, to even the culture and the times of our day. And so, I mean, that's a very quick overview, I guess you could say, of the doctrine of Scripture. But I think it gives us a real foundation as to why we believe, what we believe, what God, God's Word is to us, and, and how it applies to our lives. Next week, we will look into the doctrine of, if you want to say God, the doctrine of God, and, and kind of get into that and so forth. If there are any times where we have questions that we don't look at or address, please feel free to throw them out to me, and we can, we can also, somewhere in our study, apply them and so forth. So, any thoughts tonight? Closing thoughts tonight. Yeah. That's, that, there's, there's, di- there's, you know, there's a difference between God's word and everything else, right? There's a difference. There's a difference between God's word and everything else. There's a difference between the spirit of God and every other spirit that's out there, you know? And, and I think that today, one of the reasons I, I wanted to do this even as well is I think there's an importance today to get to the fundamentals of what we believe and why we believe it. All of us here, and I include myself in that in a sense, all of us here have been on the road fairly long. You guys longer than me, obviously. But I have found today that there is in some ways in the church a spiritual or biblical illiteracy to the foundational principles, even to the statement of faith of what we believe and why we believe it. And, and so I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping, that's why I'm recording it and going to be putting it out to the church. I'm hoping that many of our younger, maybe less seasoned or less mature in the faith individuals will grab hold of this somehow, even if they can't come out, but if they at least can get it at home or at some time and get a foundation in God's word. Because with what we see coming in our world today, you know, if you don't have a foundation in what God's word says and why we believe what we believe and what we believe, it's going to be very difficult to stand in our day and age. And so that's kind of where, where I'm coming from in all this. I hope that makes, I hope that makes sense.